This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, my name is Daryl Ong, and you're tuned in to Banan, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. As we wind down towards the end of 2022, this week on the program, we're going to recap some of the biggest sporting stories of the year. First up, the biggest, most watched major sporting tournament this year is the ongoing FIFA World Cup in Qatar, who is the first Middle Eastern country to host the tournament. However, for over 12 years since FIFA awarded them hosting duties, the state had to answer to reports of worker abuse, homophobia, sexism and racism, which are well documented with exposés in the media. Stemming from this, a couple of weeks ago, sports writer Bob Holmes joined us on the program as we talked about sports washing in these modern times. There's so much attention on this World Cup now. Mm. It's almost a test case for the whole concept of sports washing. I think the general view is that it has worked. It certainly put a lot of small countries on the map, and they um, there are some examples. I think, uh, well, Abu Dhabi with Manchester City, mm-hmm. for example. I think you would have to consider that as having worked. But now they they sort of up the ante on this with the World Cup, and there's more scrutiny. And people are actually wondering about this. Can it backfire again? And given the amount of criticism it's getting now, there's a there's an argument for saying that Qatar is getting far more criticism, I think, in the past couple of weeks than it's had in 12 years since the decision was made. Yeah. And they're getting uh, a bit ratty about it too. They didn't bargain for this. So it's highlighted their weaknesses basically you know the the highlight the focus has come on migrant workers lbgt uh people um and all that Hmm. and i think a lot of the world's population was unaware of all that before this this world cup so it's although it's it certainly put qatar on the map It's highlight. It's also highlighted uh, what you would say are some of their weaknesses of their society. Mm. And talking about hosting the World Cup, right? Um, although you know, like you mentioned, you know, Qatar will be the center of attention of the planet for the next month uh, during the World Cup. Tourism money coming into to the to the country, but ultimately. In the end of the day, you'll lose Qatar millions, if not billions of dollars, right? In spite of the financial loss, Bob, what would you say is the impetus for countries to want to host the World Cup? Uh, Prestige, um, financial, I suppose, if you get it right, Mm. even though you do have to make a pretty large investment, um, it is possible to make a profit on it. Mm. Um, I mean, some countries have. I mean, it's, it's got a checkered history, this. Uh, there's spectacular examples of it of it not working or or, um, or losing great amounts of money, like uh, Russia uh, spent uh, 50 billion on the Winter Olympics mm-hmm. in 2014, and that's uh, far more than anyone's ever spent on the Summer Olympics, which is a much much bigger operation. Mm. Um, and but that was uh, Putin. Um, 
putting you know Russia on a pedestal, and uh, and he I think he made some money out of it too. And whereas Russia for the World Cup in 2018, they only spent 11 billion. That's right, 11 billion. Yep. 11 billion, and I've read where Qatar is spending 300 billion. That's right. Just to put things into perspective. Mm. Yeah, it's an insane, insane amount of money, right? I also read the fact that if you take the last three editions of the World Cup and combine them, Qatar has still spent more. Yeah, absolutely. And you you have to wonder what, what they're really getting out of it mm. because there are only 330,000 Qatari citizens. I mean, the population is nearly 3 million, mm. but migrant workers or, or expats, some of those are, you wouldn't call them migrant workers, but they do, they're doing very nicely, thank you. But um, they're expats, they're not Qataris. Mm. So actual population of Qatar, the, the native population, if you like, is, is only the... About the size of Kwantan or or Saramban or something. Yeah, I mean, really, and and they're staging a World Cup. I mean, <laughs> it it is quite incredible. To a point you brought up, Bob, about the migrant workers, about the expats, that are the foreign workers basically working for the World Cup. According to Qatar officials, there's a grand total, Bob, of three work-related deaths, contradicting many media reports that put the number in a much higher region, right, in the thousands. I mean, this whole lack of transparency and clarity in the lead-up uh, to Qatar 2022 is... If anything, it only amplifies the issues in Qatar, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. It's like uh, shining a light on on your uh, on your downside, isn't it? Your bad points. Um, but I mean, they're trying to cover up with these uh, Star Warsy stadiums. I mean, I think it's <laughs> the only way to describe them. They look like some uh, you know flying saucer that's that's landed. I mean, the architecture is incredible. They're supposed to have um, air conditioning. Yeah. They're not all enclosed. I mean, uh, how are you going to, uh, how that's going to work with, when the, um, you know, the air will, will blow in and out. But uh, they seem confident. Mm. But this is all show, isn't it? You know, deep down behind the scenes, it's not quite as, as rosy as that. And uh, now the focus is on them. You see, you're seeing the other side and you, you're hearing about the laws of the land and mm. all that, which mm. are not exactly conducive to inviting hundreds of thousands of football fans. Yeah, for sure. Um, although, Bob, um, looking at the other side of the coin, there's always two sides to, co- to the coin, right? Um, the defenders of Qatar as a host country say that, you know, high-profile events like these can be used as leverage to improve human rights. I mean, obviously, we see the facts. The facts are there now. But in an ideal world, Bob, is that even a possibility? Well, I think to some extent it has. I think the, the spotlight when the uh, Guardian newspaper came out with that report in 2021 saying that 6,500 people had died. I think that really made them sit up. And since then, conditions have improved. Even the, um, even the Amnesty International people and Human Rights Watch mm. have acknowledged that. Mm. But they're, they're coming from a very low base. There's a lot of room for improvement. But okay, uh, to be fair, 
things have got a little bit better. Mm. There is a minimum wage in Qatar now, which isn't uh, the case in, in surrounding countries. So I think their eyes have been opened. They probably didn't realize that there'd be so much scrutiny yeah. on uh, these, um, these things. They just thought if they built fancy stadiums and the pitches were all right, everything would be fine but it's it's not yeah clearly not and you know like you mentioned you know, in 2018 russia host, um, hosted the world cup there were some you know talks there as well and arguably not to this level of you know condemnation from sporting authorities and fans the pressure this year on qatar seemed to be a lot more intense it's been building for 12 years i mean there was the initial shock horror when they got the the vote mm -hmm. and the assumption was that it would be overturned that uh, there would be uh, some legal challenge they did investigate and uh, several members of that committee that voted for Qatar were banned for life. Yep. And those, those people were, did have dubious reputations to begin with. And there's no doubt that um, that, that did happen. But uh, the key thing was the, um, they, didn't all, uh, they weren't all bribed and they didn't all vote for Qatar. It was 14-8. But the key, uh, what swung it, was uh, Michel Platini as the boss of UEFA. He had four votes, or the UEFA had four votes. And uh, they were all going to vote together. And, the, and they were going to vote for the United States. They had this meeting in France. Then Prime Minister, or President rather, Nicolas Sarkozy, put pressure on Platini to change the vote and vote for Qatar mm. because he wanted to sell fighter jets to Qatar, Mirage Jets, which he subsequently did. Platini has said that himself, and Blatter has backed him up. Yeah. And that's, that's what swung it. Yeah. And uh, so tiny Qatar with 300 and odd thousand people defeated the United States, Australia, Japan, and South Korea. 12 years ago, FIFA inverted commas, sold two World Cups at once, right? Russia 2018 and Qatar 2022. Real smash and grab of money, if you ask me. But in your opinion, how much of what's been happening ultimately is FIFA's fault? Oh, uh, most of it, I think. Um, I don't know whether Qatar really believed they could actually pull this off without FIFA first of all having members who were going to vote for them and then uh, deciding not to really push the legal challenge to them uh, because I think the general consensus is that they were afraid it would throw up even more dirt. Mm. Uh, so that, that can be the only logical explanation for not pursuing this. Mm. I mean, the whole world, well, just about the whole world, wanted it changed. I mean, and the fact that it was a Summer World Cup and, you know, there's an inspection tour made to all candidates and they go and check everything as opposed to anyway. I mean, even there are cases of the traffic lights being turned permanently green when the FIFA party goes through oh, so wow. they don't get caught in traffic jams. So this has happened with the Olympic Committee. Same thing when they're viewing a potential venue. So they do all this. And, and then uh, the fact that it's supposed to be in the summer when the temperatures are in the 50s, even, even reach 60 sometimes, that would have outweighed anything, wouldn't it? Absolutely impossible to play. Only later did FIFA wake up and say, oh, well, we can't play in that heat. We'll have to have it in the winter. Mm. 
which, that, you know, which uh, is what we've got now, yeah. imposing on all these uh, countries, northern hemisphere countries, uh, seasons. Yeah, yeah. It brings about uh, his own set of problems uh, as well. Um, but you, when you're talking about, you know, pressure from human rights group, like you mentioned, Amnesty International being one of them. And, you know, FIFA right now, um, back then, uh, when you're looking back 12 years ago, it's a whole different regime, right? A new president, uh, new exco members and all that. In, in your opinion, what are they doing to try to get ahead of this? To be fair to them, they can't really undo it. I don't think uh, Gianni Infantino could, could have undone this when he took over about five years ago, wasn't it, around then? You know, the die was cast. The, the stadiums were, you know, half built mm. and um, no, no one really had any appetite for it anymore. It, people just accepted it. But they can do a lot more to stop it happening again. And also, I think that um, was a bit rich of Infantino saying, let's focus on the football now, when it was FIFA's fault mm. uh, all along. And I thought Bruno Fernandes really summed things up uh, the other night when he was asked immediately after the um, final whistle blew on the last game of the Premier League season mm. if he was looking forward to the World Cup. And he said, no, not, we're not happy at all about it. And uh, for such a big party, for fans and everything, we just wish it was being done in a better way. Mm. And I think that really seemed to sum up the sentiment of players who I think since COVID or during COVID suddenly become a lot more socially aware and sensitive to um, the feelings of fans in particular. And there's, there's really not much enthusiasm in Europe for this. Yeah. There, there probably is more in, in Malaysia and the, significantly the um, Asian Confederation didn't uh, complain about the, um, they more or less agreed with Infantino, we've got to get on with it now. Mm. And so did the South American Association. It's, it's the Matsalis. It's the, the moaning Matsalis in Europe and Australia and America that are kicking up a fuss. Mm. The, even the Arab world has kind of come together in defending Qatar. So you've got this polarization, which is also unfortunate. Yeah. But uh, I think once once the whistle sounds, the players will want to play. They they will manage to put it aside for for the duration, but they should never forget, you know, why they are there. Our sports writer Bob Holmes, as we talked about sports washing in the lead up to the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. This week on Banan, we're recapping some of the biggest sporting stories of the year. More to come, so stick around on here on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, this is Banan. My name's Daryl, and this week we are recapping some of the biggest sporting stories of 2022. Over the last five years, we've seen a change of government four times. That means four youth and sports ministers. The freshly minted YB Hannah Yo was appointed to the post after GE15. 
Massive challenges mount ahead of her as she aims to combat corruption, solve out problems within sports associations, while ensuring that sports is in a safe space for all, regardless of demographic and gender. A couple of weeks back before the elections, the show explored the role of the youth and sports minister and the different nuances that comes with the posts. Sports lawyer and expert panel at KBS, Richard Wee, joined us on that program. So lots of lots of things happening, lots of jurisdictions under uh, the Ministry of Youth and Sport. With all this, Richard, you've been there. Do you feel that you know it's too much? Like youth and sport should be you know separate entities, or are these two sectors just permanently intertwined? You know, Daryl, that's a that's a really good question. And for a long time, my personal view is that it should be separated. Uh, I feel that, of course, there's an overlap between youth and sports. Uh, that's not. Um, yeah, of course. Let's go. Let's not uh, deny that. Yeah. Mm. But there's also many uh, overlaps, or much overlaps between sports and infrastructure, sports and economy, um, uh, sports and education. Um, so should we then merge sports with education, for example? Yeah. So I think uh, it should be separate, simply because sports is a standalone industry. Mm. Uh, I think many people underestimate the veracity and the extent of uh, the sporting industry in Malaysia. Mm. I'll give an example before we move sure, on. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, if you have a, a running competition in, in KL, uh, the person taking part in the running competition will may buy a new pair of socks, pair of shoes, income for the sporting business. Then he or she will take a public transport to go down and run maybe. Mm. So which means that public transport company earn money mm. Uh, probably typical Malaysian will always have nasi lemak before they run so the nasi lemak store will earn some money <laughs> blood, it's a whole blood, blood, ecosystem yeah, yeah. And then after the run they will go for food massage mm. or they go for what kind of masur take a rest blah 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 there's a huge repercussion from mm. one event just one event uh, mm. so imagine repeating that over and over again so that's why I feel just a small tiny example I gave you illustrate the potential of uh, sporting industry as a standalone um, industry, yeah. yeah, for sure. Because you, you right, like you rightly pointed out, you know, there are a lot of you know things that youth and sport do uh, work together with. Right? They go, uh, they are pretty much aligned. But also, there are a lot of things that aren't. You know, like we were mentioning off the mic, Undi eighteen, for example. What does that have to do with sport? Right? Correct, correct. Yeah, I suppose um, uh, you need political will to divide that. Mm. And um, I do not know whether this coming election, whoever who wins the election and become the government, I. I don't think any of them would have the political will to, to divide it yet. Yeah, but I personally hope that it will be divided yeah, yeah. one day. Mm. Yeah, but I think most of it stems from the fact that, you know, I guess Malaysian love their sport, right? And to have that one person dedicated just to sport sounds like a dream come true. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. That'd yeah. be good, yeah. Um, next one, Richard. Uh, there's no question, you know, that, you know, sport, like you rightly mentioned, you know, requires funding across all sectors. Um, what would you say is the best way to find that balance, you know, between A, uh, creating a sustainable sport ecosystem and also B, maintaining sporting excellence, mm. money and excellence? Again, really good question. Actually, it's it's two spectrum of the same matter. Mm. Um, one is the sports for the entire rakyat. Uh, we need to create uh, a system, a infrastructure, the opportunity for any Malaysian mm. to play any sport at any time. So, of course, our favorite example is always playing badminton outside the house, the house where, yeah. you know, terrace house and the gate becomes a, the, the net. 
uh, there's that shows opportunity. All you got to do is buy a racket, so you make the badminton racket affordable. Any Malaysian can play badminton outside the house. Example that to be fair to all the governments, uh, we have, we've had like three governments in the last five years, mm-hmm. um, and even dating back to the 70s and 80s, the Malaysian government has always been um, heavily involved in sports infrastructure. We've always built new stadiums, good stadiums um, for whatever events. So in terms of uh, accessibility for sports, especially in urban areas, I feel we're not bad. Mm. You know, there's always a badminton hall nearby, squash court nearby, swimming pool nearby, etc., etc. If you know what I mean, mm. but for when it comes to premium sports, uh, elite I, sports, elite sports, sorry, yeah. uh, where you're dealing with high performance athletes, athletes who uh, may win the gold medal uh, for the world championship or the Olympics. Now, for that, requires a lot of money. Mm. Uh, you require low investment mm. in the activities, the training, the um, the, the the products, the uh, uh, usage, the badminton rackets, the equipment. Sorry, uh, they require a lot of investment in that. So that is where I feel the there should be a merger um, between the private sector and public sector. We we can't just rely on the government all the time to provide money for sports. Yeah. Um, there must be some involvement from the private sector. Mm. It happened before uh, when under YB Kyrie, and even before that in YB Azalina's time, we can see that uh, that minister tried to bring in uh, more private, uh, more private sponsorship. Yeah. Mm. So the last three ministers, uh, YB Sadik, YB Dato Rizal, and that, we call him Peja in mm-hmm. nickname. Yeah. Uh, I think they have too short a time mm. to do something about it. Mm. But uh, I feel any of these ministers is given time, just like YB KJ, they will bring in private investors to come in. We need that. We need private investors to come in. It's yep. necessary, mm, right? Necessary, yes. Talking a little bit about, you know, you were mentioning um, three governments in the past five years, three youth and sports ministers mm. in the past five years. And with new ministers come, you know, new ideas and policies. Uh, newcomers will often stay away from the initiatives and legacies of their predecessors. Um, would you say that that continuity, you know, for that long-term plan or the lack of continuity, for example, is a major obstacle in advancing sporting culture in Malaysia? There are pros and cons, you know, Daryl. Um, if you have a minister who is in charge for a long time, it definitely will create continuity and some sort of uh, calmness in mm. the system because it's the same. You or know? A consistent consistency plan, at yes, least. Yes, right? yeah. And then the the policies are going to be consistent. But new people always bring new ideas. Yeah. So, for example, uh, when YB Said Sadiq came in, he pushed esports really hard. And I must say something. Actually, many people didn't realize that at the tail end of YBKJ's time, he actually, he started yeah, yeah. esports. Yeah, he's, he. But of course, uh, Said Sadiq came in. He was a definitely youth minister, young chap uh, with great ideas. So he created a new impetus, and that has gone on. So new ministers bring new ideas, which is also good. Mm. Uh, but too often changes. Exactly. Cannot lah. Uh, bit susala, yeah? yeah. Yeah. But uh, the three ministers we had recently, I will say one thing about this. All three, when I work with them. They clearly have good ideas. They they want to do something for sports, but they are of course constrained by time. And the fact is, they have political issues that they have to deal with. Mm. So I would hope the next uh, government, hopefully lah, not just for sports but everything else, sure. yeah. that we have some sort of consistency. I think Malaysians are tired of changing government. Mm. You know, especially when the majority did vote for one particular. 
secular government and it changed without most of the majority's view. So let's hope uh, the next one will be more consistent. Mm. Um, Richard, do you have any examples of you know long-standing policies under KBS, uh, under the preview of the Youth and Sports Ministry that should be updated for, for current times? Are there, are there ancient policies right now in KBS? Well, I wouldn't use the word ancient. Uh, well, some of the projects, of course, uh, when it comes to, um, for example, uh, high-performance athletes, elite mm. athletes, mm. Uh, may need to be refreshed. Uh, we had a podium program at yep. one time, yep. uh, which was parked at the National Sports Institute. It was very, very well run. Of course, there will be some views to the contrary, mm. but I was very lucky to see it running with my own eyes. And my view, uh, despite there was a slight lack of manpower, uh, the podium program was uh, striving very, very hard. Mm-hmm. I'm just, just a personal view. I do not know whether this is a universal view, but I think even the athletes look comfortable uh, with program. ISN mm. running the podium program. It was, of course, moved back to the uh, our grandmaster of sports, which is MSN. MSN is a very experienced organization. Uh, they've been doing it for decades. Uh, and the current leader, Dato Shapawi, he's a very experienced chap. So he knows how to get the best mm. out of the sports. Yeah? Mm. So he, he went back to uh, um, MSN now, podium. But because of the lockdown over the last two years, the, the pandemic, I think it put paid to the whatever growth. Mm. And now with Malaysia opening back, I hope the podium program can be reviewed. Doesn't matter who they park under, MSN or ISN. As long as it goes on. As long as it goes on. And mm. goes on well. Mm. Yeah, and I think it needs to be refreshed. That was sports lawyer Richard Wee exploring the role of a youth and sports minister and the different nuances that comes with the job. This week on Banan, we're recapping some of the biggest sporting stories of the year. And our last story is on stadiums and infrastructure, and in particular, Stadium Shah Alam, which for years now has been plagued with structural issues due to the lack of proper maintenance, so much so that FAM deemed the iconic landmark unsafe, forcing their home team, Selangor, to move out. After that, there were talks of a complete demolition of the stadium, but now local football fans can breathe a sigh of relief as there are plans in place to refurbish and enhance the heritage sporting site, aiming to bring back the glory days of what was once the biggest stadium in Southeast Asia. A few months ago, grassroots sport activist Khalilo Rahman joined us on the program. I think another thing that's special about Stadium Shah Alam, you see most uh, uh, sporting complexes, Bukit Jalil, for example, in the middle of like a commercial commercial centre, next to LRT, sure, so, so that's uh, great for convenience. But what I really like about Shah Alam is that it's, that sense of community is there, right? It's right in the middle of like a housing area. Mm. Well, what can you say about, you know, that, that, that kind of feel, that kind of location? Betul you you just hit on the nail on that. Uh, you know, not only do you have the housing complex, but you also have the commercial complex, you know. it's There's a synergy between yeah. not only the residents who live in the area, but also the commercial cafes, the pharmacies, or whatever similar to. Everything has a, has, a, has a nice synergy and there's a futsal court next to it, uh, ice cream park, uh, go-kart, and so on and so forth. So that's a... It's a, it's a living organism ecosystem right there. So in the future, we're definitely going to segue into that in, in soon around this uh, uh, this interview that, you know, it has to continue that way mm. and to enhance what is already existed. Mm. Yeah, so recent news, in case you missed it, uh, Selangor MB has kind of suggested in, in a way that it might be demolished to make way for a smaller uh, smaller stadium dedicated just to football. But of course, uh, just fresh off the press that they are going to redevelop it instead, right? Um, enhancing different features of the Shah Alam, which has been closed for 
quite a couple of months now, uh, right? So Langor FC uh, had to move out of their home stadium and they've been playing their game somewhere else. So um, what were your reactions to, uh, to when, when you first heard the news, I guess, you know, um, was this a long time coming in your opinion? Uh, yes, definitely. Because again, I come from the grassroots and I've been talking to people both online and offline. So both online and offline with the people who I've been talking with, they have the same sentiment. Stadium Sha'alam needs to be better, mm. needs to be enhanced. Yes, the history Semutu must be uh, preserved. But on top of that, it has been enhanced uh, going forward. You know, the roof is problematic. You know, some of the lighting features are not working and so on and so forth. Upper Semutu again. So I've been hearing about this since I started into grassroots football in 2016. Mm. You know, so... It is a long time coming. Finally, they have pulled the trigger. And uh, hopefully by 2026, there's no more issues mm. going forward. And obviously, we're going to talk about the cost of this and that. You know, let's just hope that it's future-proof. Mm. You know, climate change is happening. You know, and then you have to have that thinking as well. How do we make the, not only the stadium, but the surrounding complex of Pusimoto to be uh, sustainable. Not only sustainable, eco-friendly. And uh, accessible, uh, accessible, friendly to everyone who wants to use it. Mm, that, that is the ultimate goal. That, that's mm. for sure. Um, but let's go through, I guess, uh, step by step, almost into you know what has happened to Stadium Shah Alam. Uh, lots of viral videos uh, throughout you know um, the months. It talks a little bit about, about the state of the stadium, uh, structural defects. Uh, for one, you were mentioning the roof. Um, from your experiences going there, working and in Shah, uh, Stadium Shah Alam itself. Um, how did you see the decline happening? And maybe we can get into specifics about it. Itulah, macam, for example, it was built in the 90s, two years after I was born. <laughs> so it was, it, you can totally feel how aged it went. You know, some of the layout in terms of where the lifts are, Pusimutu is quite macam, mm. bit problematic uh, as a person who just you know, need to do the work Pusimutu to hantar barang atas bawah Pusimutu. And so... Again, needs to be modernized for for not only the times but also room to be improved. Mm. So those are kind of a bit of the technicality, lah. Like. At the same time, pun Stadium Shalom is a football purpose stadium. It should be. Like I've been talking to some friends from the rugby, near community, cricket, apa semua tu. They also want a dedicated space themselves juga. Mm. So those are kind of things that we should also they should also incorporate uh, into the planning for the future juga. Mm. It should be multi-purpose, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, some football fans are going to be very pissed off at yeah. me <laughs> for saying this, but. <laughs> You know that stadium, that, that complex should be belong for all. You know, run, keep the running track. Yeah, that, that's that's me. <laughs> yeah, the running track is, is kind of iconic, right? Mm. Uh, in the sense, uh, Stadium Shah Alam, Bukit Jalil has yeah. has one too. Um, but I guess the easy answer to you know um, all these issues that mm. the stadium has come across is very simple, right? Frequent maintenance. Yeah. Proper care. Mm. We I really want to like create a like, research paper. Of, <laughs> no, it's serious. I want to create a research paper of people who maintain sports facilities. Mm. You know, it not, is a tough job. It's yeah, a, yeah. Public and private. Did they get any, any training? You know, I want to go to the root of the problem. Did they get any special training uh, to maintain all these facilities? If they didn't, then that's the problem. You know? So, mm. let's, mm. you know, create the solution for it. So, what would be the solution? Send uh, people who are very passionate with good IQ and EQ, send them abroad to like real uh, to to do like a you know professional exchange program with top stadiums around the world. Mm. Let them learn 
from the best from the world and come back and be, be implemented to not only stadiums Alam, but all stadiums and sports facilities, sports facilities private and public so there's a certain standard lah yeah, when it keep, comes to yeah. yeah I mean just recently right during the AFC Cup uh, in Bukit Jalil I think uh, a lot of netizens were poking fun at, at uh, stadium maintenance guys mm. for using like a you know like those plastic yeah. broomstick type things to clear mm. the water but Kau, uh, that, that's a great point you know Education must be there, but that also comes in the money, right? You know, yeah. You've got to send these people abroad. Of course, it's an issue, but it's an investment. It's an investment not only towards the people who are working. You know, you want to keep a high level professionalism mm. of uh, great people who love the career. You know, you cannot like bagi orang kerja. You cannot give a job to someone who does not have much passion and then you're not paying him right accordingly and so on and so forth. It has to have a value. You know, if they don't put the value into the education, then we're going to be right back where we started maybe in 2032. <laughs> we might have this conversation. Square one again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so uh, so on recent news, right, the uh, SSA restoration project will be carried out uh, through a private-public partnership with uh, MRCB, the Malaysian Resources Corporation's Berhad. They're going to foot the bill uh, to the tune of um, about 787 million ringgit, right? Uh, the company, of course, previously worked on the restoration for the Bukit Jalil mm. uh, Stadium. However, Kao, I want to ask you this. Um, Shalam in Selangor, under the Selangor State Preview, should iconic sites like this be the sole responsibility of the state governments alone? Mm, it really depends on macam how uh, much emotional attachment you got. Lah. You know, some people really want to keep the same Shalam because of like memories of, of so and so. You know, state governments should be coming in as a, like a conservationist. Ah. You know, we're conservationists like, to preserve uh, the, the historical aspect and legacy, but also work with uh, private companies or even government agencies apa semua to, to enhance the legacy even further. Mm. Uh, so uh, uh, we just talked about it before we went uh, live. Yeah. Yeah. That macam add on, you know, you don't really have to tear down 100% of Stadium Shalam. Keep the structures that, you know, the developers, I'm, I'm no engineer, but maybe the engineer or architect who was designing the, few, the future of Stadium Shalam says that, Eh, part ni, part ni, part this part, that part, and so on can be kept for the next 200 years or so. Let's keep certain aspect of the stadium alive. For example, if yeah. anyone been uh, around KL, Red KL is a is a prime example on Jalan Sultan. It was a cinema that was burnt down uh, in the 70s or 80s. Correct me if I'm wrong. And it's been revitalized uh, in the last uh, three four years. Event uh, space, event yeah. space, art yeah. space. Uh, to buy, uh, people who uh, to eat and dine and, and everything. It can be that. That was Khalilo Rahman as we have been talking about the iconic stadium Shah Alam. The three stories that we add are just snippets of larger conversations and you can head over to our website www.bfm.my forward slash to hand down these podcasts. My name is Sarah Ong and this is Ba Nan. Join Skin next week as we preview the upcoming AFF Cup. This is Ba Nan on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.